Hello and welcome everyone. You are listening to the Clarkson Ignite podcast, coming to you from the digital making suite in the Innovation Hub. For your hosts, Nick and Annalise, I'm producer Ben. Our mission is to shape this podcast to the Ignite slogan, which is Think, Make, Ignite. We hope to connect individuals across Clarkson's diverse community and give you, our listeners, interesting and unique content. Our hope is that you can walk away from our episodes learning something new and valuable, something that will truly inspire you. Due to recent events, our schedule has been changing a lot lately, so this episode we're bringing you a conversation we had this past February. We met with Alex French, who is the Sustainability Coordinator in the Institute for a Sustainable Environment. We talked about his Climate Stories project, which highlights the effects of climate change on the average person's daily life. Alex also mentioned how Clarkson is moving to become more sustainable through building upgrades, post-consumer recycling programs, and the annual Sustainability Fund projects. It was great to talk with Alex, and we hope you enjoy our conversation as much as we did. Thank you for joining us, obviously. Alex French, Sustainability Coordinator in the Institute for Sustainability, Sustainable Environment. Is that what it is? Yep. Okay. I struggle through that. Every single time, basically, we have a little ritual where I struggle through people's titles. Every Mm -hmm. time. And then Annalise... Makes fun of me. I didn't make fun of him. Yeah. All right. So why don't you just explain a little bit to our listeners what the climate stories are? Okay. So we've been working on these climate stories. They are, we've been doing them as these three minute, five minute little vignettes, these little stories. Um, my friends over at Paul Smith College have, have been doing these already. And I was kind of, I, I liked them and I liked the, idea of doing this very local anecdotal story within your community um, about how the climate is changing. So kind of getting, you know, there's this perceived notion of debate when it comes to climate change. And that's, you know, there's no scientific debate, but then how do we bring it home and how do we make the whole, the whole concept a little more tangible? So with these climate stories, we're talking to people throughout the community in Potsdam or the wider Clarkson community, and we're asking them, okay, what have you noticed change in your life? What's different now than it was a couple decades ago? So we've been doing it as a, there, there's actually a climate stories project on online, a website about these. So I've been emailing with this guy, and I want all of my Clarkson climate stories to go onto his database. Oh, nice. So it's a larger effort than just what we're doing, but it's something I think is nice for all communities to do. And then we're hearing from, say, the town highway superintendent about how plowing is different now than it was when he started plowing in Potsdam. And hearing from my boss, Sue Powers, about uh, walking across the river and just how everyone used to walk across the river when she was an undergraduate to go from the Clarkson campus straight over to Ives Park and how it would always reliably freeze and Mm -hmm. there was this sort of highway through the snow that everyone would take. Nobody does that. No. Yeah, no. That's You'd fall super the sketchy. Right now. Yeah, no yeah. way. Um, hearing people talk about, uh, like, oh, I garden, and I've been gardening for decades, and we didn't grow eggplants before, but now the growing season is longer, and we can pull eggplants off and more peppers off and hot peppers. and mm-hmm. um, Yeah, so those sorts of things. We just heard from Mayor Clyde Rabideau is one of the next ones from Saranac Lake um, that we're going to put up. He's a Clarkson alum. And he was echoing what Sue said about crossing the river when he was an undergrad. He was talking about it from a municipal point of view. How is climate change affecting? You get these um, 
how is it affecting the tourism industry in Saranac mm-hmm. Lake and the seasons being longer and shorter? Um, yeah, so those sorts of things mm-hmm. are what we've been kind of talking about. That's pretty cool. And yeah. then you, you, we talked about earlier how a big um, Saranac Lake thing is the ice castle. You said it's been like a lot smaller recently, something like that. Yeah, so, well, the uh, they used to keep it out all winter, but now... Now you can't do that because you have all these thaws. And there's been so many times in the in the recent past where they've started building it and then it started melting because all of a sudden there's like a February thaw now yeah. mm. um, that people think is normal and it's not normal. And so they'd start building it and then start melting. They have to tear the thing down or they have to run around chaotically right before the carnival starts, put this thing back together. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> in general, it's not lasting. They're not able to just keep it out for a couple months once it's up. Then it gets dangerous, and they have to they have to pull it down. So that's something pretty tangible. You know, we didn't use we didn't usually have these consistent thaws. Like today, I think the temperature got over forty degrees, and it's February. You know, I would love to see a graph. Of, yeah, and then now it's snowing wildly. It's so yeah. erratic. <clears throat> yeah, it's yeah. All, the other day was like a taste of spring. Yeah, I was, was ready. It was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's all it's all over the place now. So we're more likely to get ice storms because the temperature is more likely to hover around freezing and jump back and forth rather than plummet below into a true winter. Um, the maple industry, for example, like mm. <clears throat> we've got graphs. We're going to put out one story about maple. And the first day that maple runs each year, that the maple flows each year, uh, one of my buddies just had 100 gallons of sap a week or two ago. And not that that's impossible yeah. in the 19, in like throughout the most of the 1900s, but it's pretty rare to yeah. do that in the middle of February. You know, so that's Yeah, and isn't that, doesn't it ruin the sap or the tree the year basically because then it rethaws and then. I don't know enough about it. I'm just getting into it now. This will be my second year. Oh, really? Or do you have your sure. own uh, house you're involved in? Uh, well, I, I take uh, I take sap to a friend's house and then I do it on my fire pit. Oh, in that's the village. Cool. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, so that's my my kids like it. Mm-hmm. What are you looking to achieve with the climate stories project on at Clarkson and around the area? Um, it's it's mostly an awareness campaign. Um, I think of people that don't have the sort of scientific background. Like I come from a super rural, conservative, not. Uh, like I'm first generation college kid. Mm-hmm. Most of my family, they don't know what to make of me being the sustainability guy at a university. They like I've, I've got a lot of people in my family that think climate change is a total hoax. And so and I've got a background in anthropology. So it's this really interesting challenge to me because the the science part of it, the atmospheric chemistry part of climate change is pretty straightforward you mm-hmm. know like mm-hmm. oh we need less of this and then the equation mm-hmm. balances out it's yeah. people can do math on it but the social part and how do you get people to change and how do you get people to understand it is different so i know that you know like i know every climate conspiracy theory that's out there just like I, I know <laughs> what these, oh totally and all these <laughs> things so how do you show people that are subject to so much misinformation um, and for me, it's just, this is what we're experiencing right now. This is, this is it. This is tangible. This is not some abstract climate scientist that you think is being paid off by Al Gore. This, yeah. <laughs> right, this is like, 
this is my boss or this is the mayor that you've seen in Saranac Lake or this is just like the gardener that has the garden over there or this is the town highway superintendent, like people dealing with the the big um, the big changes, not the day-to-day changes, but the seasonal, mm-hmm. like the long-term, the 10-year averages of January, the 10-year averages of February. Um, so like how do we make them see that in a real way that directly impacts someone's life, you mm-hmm. know? like gardening, like hockey, pond hockey, like maple syrup, um, like farming, you know, all these things that you can put your hands on. Hunting, like how does it affect the hunting season? Um, we had a, we did a podcast one with Lucci, the Zamboni driver, and he was talking about hunting and how, because the season's the same every mm-hmm. year, and he's been hunting for decades, and I like hunting. And I like to be able to stock deer, and now there's a lot less snow. And for me, it's, it's just more fun mm-hmm. when, I can, when I can stock deer. And, you know, it changes behavior with, with deer based on if it's really warm, but they've already grown their winter coat and some things like that. So mm-hmm. how does it affect our recreation? Hmm. It affects way more things than I really like thought about, especially like, in a small community. Mm-hmm. Like you don't really think about these things like on a daily basis, you know? Yeah. That's really cool. And then from a community perspective, having the um the the conversations moving more from like how how is it going to change to like, okay, how do we adapt to it? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we deal with getting more rainfall over fewer days throughout the season? And dealing with these flash flood sort of situations, yeah. um, these freeze thaw cycles causing ice mm-hmm. jams. Yeah, mm. you know. So how do we, especially know, li- being an outlet to that around X? Yeah, yeah, d- definitely. And uh, you know, like showing people, like, oh, look at the insurance claims from wind damage historically um, for St. Lawrence County. Yeah, you know, look at how much much more volatile everything's becoming. How have you taken this uh, this passion, this topic, you think, to campus? I mean, I know you have a lot of kids in and out of your office trying to get involved. What are some of the projects that you see come across your desk? Um, the ones I'm really excited about as far as, like, more other climate-related projects would be our partnership with the Town and the Village Potsdam mm-hmm. on the Climate Smart Communities, which is really... You know, so we've got in them, like we, we initiated with the town and the village. Now there's this um, this community-wide team working with the municipalities to reduce greenhouse gases, to think about how we can better be prepared for flooding. Look at our climate resiliency issues and vulnerability issues. That's where we ended up. That's why we ended up getting all of this uh, insurance data. Um, so to dive into what does climate change mean for Potsdam, and how does Potsdam prepare for things like the ice storm in 1998? Now that we now that we're seeing overall 100 year storms are becoming 10 year storms, and that mm-hmm. sort of a trend, then what does that look like on the ground for us? Um, so I'm really excited about that kind of resiliency partnership that we have with them. And then the other one is, I'm very much a proponent of offsetting carbon that we have to pay for our own emissions, and we keep track of it every single year, but do we, um, like, we can spend millions and millions of dollars on the high-tech energy efficiency upgrades, but we could also spend a fraction of that 
having a much larger impact socially, ecologically, by sequestering carbon in other parts of the world or in other parts of the country, um, other parts of the state. We can do, you know, everything from land restoration uh, and afforestation, reforestation work to methane destruction coming out of landfills also counts. I don't love those types of carbon offsets, but that's another type of carbon offset. Yeah. Um, well, Clarkson did say that it's trying to reach a uh, net zero for greenhouse gases by 2025. Right. And they did do the, didn't recently they announced that they're 100% powered by renewables? 100%. Technically. 100% electricity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been driving, we've been doing some major energy upgrades, like the, the chill arena for the ice. They're doing a phenomenal job at like lowering our costs and our energy consumption for that. Um, this building that we're in right now, the ERC, has all sorts of sensors on it for occupancy and controlling how much airflow is coming in and oh, out of the wow. building. The The lighting is much cheaper. The, the whole HVAC system is more efficient. So we've been doing that throughout campus pretty aggressively. But at some point, the investment for switching away from the natural gas over to all renewable natural gas or which would be like methane coming off out of a farm, mm-hmm. the manure lagoons, you can capture that gas and do mm-hmm. some, something to it. So to fuel switch to renewable sources or fuel switching to like wood pellets or something like that, it doesn't make sense for us anymore. Like yeah. it's not quite there. The return on investment wouldn't quite be there. So then you drive it down as low as you can, but then you have to offset the remainder. So you can do that through paying for conservation in the area it's one of the projects we've been looking at and working on um we're part of this important ecological corridor between the adirondacks and algonquin park so if we can pay for conservation easements in places that are at risk of development in the thousand islands re- region then we can maintain this biological integrity and connectivity and claim carbon credits from that protection that we've done because we've kept this land from being converted from forest to agriculture. Mm -hmm. You know, that's Mm -hmm. another way that you can work on carbon offsets. So there's a lot of really high value, high co-benefit programs that are there ready to be acted on. Um, But, you know, so I I feel like we should start paying for our pollution right away. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't kick it down the road until our emissions are lower. We just have to pay the cost of business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So I know another project you mentioned earlier when we were talking was um, doing like the food inventories mm-hmm. or the waste inventories. Um, and I'll let you talk a little bit about that. But I do have like one question because I know that you'd said that like you guys were sorting through all the recycled things and picking out like what wasn't supposed to be recycled and what was. And like what's some of like the most common things that you've seen that aren't supposed to be recycled that are being recycled? Um, the most common things that that aren't supposed to be recycled. Mm-hmm. So just in general, there's, uh, in the U.S., we get around 20% contamination of our recycling bins. You've got this, I always hear people asking me things like, oh, it doesn't even matter. Like, why, why do you even bother with that? Because they just dump all the recycling in with the garbage. And the real answer with that, it's so, it's so frustrating, is that uh, the, the custodial staff, are the only people on campus that really know how to recycle. So <laughs> seriously, like they're the only they ones that They should have are, a class at the, before they, you come to Clarkson. Sh- seriously. Um, like the Title IX stuff. I, the same day. I would love, I would love that. Even, like there's even a lot of 
environmental graduate students that don't know how to recycle because it's confusing and it changes every six months and mm -hmm. it's market-based and it has to do with uh, laws in China as far as what we can and can't recycle here. So China accepted overall somewhere around 3% contamination rate. We're at 20%. And Casella could bring it down to 3% with their zero sort system. But China just re reduced that to 0.5%. So they're for certain kinds of recycled things. So it's really hard to hit that. And just working on not contaminating the recycling, I think right now is the big focus that we have to do. Just, um, but, the, but the rules change. Like sometimes you see a plastic bag that has a recycle symbol on it, but that's not recyclable in mm -hmm. the Casella system. Those little ketchup cups that I think we should get rid of anyway. Yeah, they have a recycle symbol on the bottom, but they're not recyclable. Yeah, but in the Casella system, it's it's designed to capture the bulk and increase overall. What is the Casella system? So they've got this zero sort thing, so it all goes to this factory. There's all these robots and things float and magnets and all these <laughs> things going around. It's really it's really high tech. Um, but that means that things fall through the crack. So little things in general don't get recycled. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Right, so if it's under a two-inch diameter, like two inch by two inch sort of thing, like these little ketchup containers, it's not gonna it's not gonna work. Yeah. If you didn't rinse it out from all your ketchup, then it's contaminated and then you're throwing it in and the more contaminated that the recycle bin gets, then the custodians will see it and they'll dump it in the trash because it's not their job to pick mm -hmm. through. Like, yeah. and it shouldn't be. It should be our job to be educated. Mm -hmm. And it should be our job to reduce before we recycle anyway, we should mm -hmm. just not be making as much. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's kind of my, that's the overall. So there's a lot of food waste mm -hmm. and plastic flimsy bags, which I'm glad about this New York State plastic bag ban. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, just yeah, those soon. sheet plastics. Is it soon that it's an act? March 1st. March 1st? Oh, few, few few days. Days. it's a leap year, so they oh, extended yeah. it as far as they could. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I have noticed that with, like, a lot of stores themselves, they're, like, going to using, like, reusable bags and stuff. And, mm -hmm. I mean, I have in, like, my car, my boyfriend's car, in our apartment, we have, like, stacks of just, like, reusable bags so that we can never forget them. <laughs> but, yeah, it's interesting because I'm always, like, very curious about recycling because I never really know exactly, like, what I can, what I can't. And so, like, it's just interesting to me because, I like, I want to be able to recycle the right things, but I'm just, like, I stand there in my kitchen and I'm, like, I don't know. <laughs> the rules change. I, I call Casella every six months or so, and the rules change all the time. Like, there are thresholds for what they can take. So it's really not your fault. Yeah. Um, my advice for people is to just focus on reuse mm -hmm. and to just put things in the recycle bin that you're absolutely sure are recyclable. And if you're not sure, then just don't contaminate the recycling. Interesting. Good to know. Oh, you, you were going to say about the uh, inventory management. Oh, so um, we've been doing uh, some food waste inventory yeah, stuff. So there's, a, yeah. so there's another exciting New York State law that's mm -hmm. been passed recently. So January 2022, big producers of food waste will have to divert their food waste or go into food recovery programs where mm -hmm. you can feed the food waste to people instead of throwing it in the yeah. landfill. And mm -hmm. as a result of this... You know, you have students coming in dumping trash on your floor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm, so I'm having students, like, weigh things and separate things. And we did a, a food waste audit in Ross Brooks. And right now most of the – maybe all the prep cooking for campus happens in Ross Brooks. So we've already been diverting that 
pre-consumer food waste, the kitchen scraps, into the anaerobic digester. Doing post-consumer food waste in the anaerobic digester is tricky because it's, uh, it, it, you can kind of think of it like a mechanical pig that eats up all the food waste on one side, and then on the other side you get gas and fertilizer. So unlike a pig, the anaerobic digester doesn't know to not eat a fork or to mm-hmm. not eat a plastic bag, mm-hmm. so you have to be really careful when it comes to quality control. Even pigs don't really know that. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> but I've been, like, shin-deep in digester sludge with a shop back, and, uh. you know, it gets bad in there if you... <laughs> but if the quality control isn't right, so we've really clamped down on quality control for that. So just pre-consumer waste where we can where uh, they can control what's going into it. And then for post-consumer waste... Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So we're we're trying to see if we can set up maybe a community-wide composting system, maybe hire it out to a farmer or something. But we've been communicating with SUNY Potsdam and with some of the village people trying to figure out what site we might be able to use. It's going to take a while to get set up, but we have until January 2022. And, and then in the meantime, we should really be looking into, you know, if there's food left over from catering, you know, can that go to Helping Hands in Hannibal Falls where they're providing mm. meals for people? Um, there's a similar program in Canton uh, that partners, I think, with the Unitarian Universalist Church. So how can we feed good food to people instead of throwing away? That's the highest priority. Mm-hmm. They and, give it to kids who live off campus. Trust me, I'm very hungry. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the U.S. EPA has this hierarchy, and if there's food— the first thing you do is you feed people with it. Yeah. And the second thing you do is you feed animals with it. And the third thing that you do is anaerobic digestion. And the fourth thing you do is composting as a last resort. And then landfill if there's absolutely no other. Um, so that's this hierarchy that we have. So we're trying to figure out what sort of food recovery for people do we do. We have our anaerobic digestion, but can we scale that up in a way with good quality control? And then what can we do with post-consumer food waste out of places like Ross Brooks, which would require getting rid of those ketchup cups for now whenever we do <laughs> stuff like this. And the green buckets that we have in all the apartments, I bring that to my to, – uh, like I, I hoard all that, and I take it all to my community garden. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. next to the uh, the clothes washer um, rooms I remember from last year. The, the clothes – where my garden is? No, 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 where the compost is for the apartments. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it's also where a really big icicle hangs. Yeah. And I'd be very afraid to compost my stuff because every time I'd throw, like, banana peels or anything in there, I'd be like, well, I'm taking my life into my own hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so then we pick it up out of those, and then I bring it over to my garden. It's got to be heavy. Yeah, yeah, food and water is heavy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is another reason why, you know, facilities might really like to see us getting food food out of the landfill because then we're not paying Casella to take it away. Yeah. Mm. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Then another project you mentioned when we were talking earlier was um, taking kids out into the back 40 and you guys were doing um, inventory on the carbon, the trees or something like that. I'm sorry, I didn't remember. Yeah, so so right now we're, we've got, um, so the, this year's sustainability fund is kind of going towards natural areas and we're thinking about several different projects that can go forward with that. Um, one that I would really like to do that we probably won't spend much or any of the money on is a forest inventory just to see what's out there. You know, like we, we know that all the ash trees are going to die from the emerald ash borer. So we're going to lose acres of forest right off of the Why bat. are they going to die? 
there's this invasive beetle that's sweeping through the country right now, and all the ash mm-hmm. trees, like 99.9, they're dead. Unless they you only treat attack them with ash pesticides. trees? Yeah, they only tra- attack ash trees. Well, at least that's a silver lining. So Do you we, know what the name of that beetle is? The emerald ash borer. I almost think that that was the, like, insect that I wrote one of my high school biology papers on. Oh, yeah. Because I think it was around the time where it was, like, a really big, like, popular thing that people were talking about. Yeah, so it's it's 10 miles away from Potsdam right now, 15 miles away. It might already be here, north. North? It's coming from the river down. Okay. But it's also coming from the south up, but it's closer to us. I I think it made it as far as the Brazier Township. Wow. Um... I'm worried about my home in New Hampshire. Yeah, and then <laughs> and then what happens is you the the trees die from the top down because they they eat away these little cavities underneath the bark, and then the water and the nutrients aren't able to make it to the top of the mm-hmm. canopy of the tree. The tree becomes very brittle, so if you go to cut it down once it's already infected, then branches might just start falling. It becomes very dangerous. You have to get machinery in there to take it down. So, a lot of communities are just like Potsdam already has started just cutting down their ash trees before the emerald ash borer gets here. Wow. So you want to, um, and then, it, and we can, we've treated the ones, many of the ones right on our main campus with, you can a, treat them? with a pesticide that you inject into the roots and then it pulls it up through and then you have to re-inject it every two or three years in hopes that the, the wave of emerald ash borer goes through and then our trees have made it through and then we have a seed source going forward and stuff like that. But in the forest, one of the main things that the foresters are talking about is you're going to have these big patches of ash trees die, and then if there's honeysuckle or some invasive plant underneath that, and then you've burst open this hole in the canopy, now the now those invasives are out of control. Mm. So I really want to do a forest inventory and a management plan to sort of get a grasp on that and some things that are going on with beech trees and, and other things. So I've got I have a, a student doing that as sort of an internship setting it up pretty much just setting it up to carry out an inventory in the fall mm-hmm. so she's doing some prep GIS work i tree work and another student that's working on new forest trail maps um for the back 40 which is actually the back 400 yeah and uh yeah we have a lot of good forest resources here at here Clexon mm mm-hmm. mhm Oh, so you're doing a ton of stuff right now, then? Yes, yeah, so I'm bouncing all yeah. over as food and trees. and. I know there's another project you're working on, or you guys haven't decided yet, but um, I saw you working in the um, one of the conference rooms in the student center, um, and people were coming in and voting on new projects to work on around campus. And Did you guys come to a decision on that? So that was the sustainability fund. So okay. we got really good input that day. And the, the projects that have been emerging, um, but we now we're waiting on actual budgets, of those projects to then see what each project costs and then compare that to the input we got on that day. But there's things like uh, a trail inventory and a design and a hazard management plan for the bike club. Yeah, I know. I'm part and, of the bike club. I remember them sending me a text to go and vote. <laughs> yeah, so then that one that one got the most votes. Yeah. Um, and that's exciting because we could have a really – we could address some, some erosion issues and – and really balance ecology and recreation in a nice way with that mm-hmm. long term. And there's grant opportunities. If we do this design work for several thousand dollars, then we could take it and get, you know, $20,000 or something through this New York State grant program. And we'd be a good candidate for that. And then 
there's my forest inventory plan. People are so into that, which I understand. Um, it's cool. not as exciting as the it's other ones. It's definitely not as exciting. But it's important. Yeah. And then there's uh, Kuwak is proposing a lean-to in the backwoods. And I think that that would be really interesting because I don't think that you you can't you can't really easily teach an environmental ethic. I, I don't think you can easily. Like people are taking classes and studying Aldo Leopold. That's that's one thing. But the there's been really interesting research about how just people need to spend time outdoors. Yeah. If mm-hmm. you want to have that environmental ethic, you have to get people outside. You have to get people disconnected from this fast paced world, and you have to go and sit in the woods and like recreate in the woods and just be in the woods. It's good for your in the water. Yeah. Your uh, blood pressure. I remember they say yeah. walk in the woods lowers your blood pressure and people yeah. should do it. Forest bathing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm all about that. I think a lean to would be great. St. Lawrence university has a lean to, uh, Paul Smith has all sorts of camping sites and lean tos on their property. I think that we need to make the forest more accessible to mm-hmm. our student body mm-hmm. and to the Potsdam community. Um, other ones were, there was the lean to the trail maps, beautifying the trailhead over by the water tower. I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. Um, yeah, I'm blanking on the other ones, but some all good projects that I'm excited about. Maybe some no-mo zones. No-mo zones. I like that. A lot of those ones were, um, had to do with gardening where, uh, not only, um, regional plants would be planted. I thought that was really cool. Yep. Yeah. Pollinator friendly, not uh, like having an aesthetic of more life instead of uh, like let's kill everything in this. Yeah, <laughs> like take out all the weeds and plant a bunch of daisies and then throw some mulch on top of it. Yeah, or just like Kentucky bluegrass or something. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Oh, so have you worked with the kids at H2Code before? Um, they've come into my office a couple times, but yeah. not, not a bunch. Oh, really? Yeah, but I like what they're up to. I like that they're finding these innovative solutions to incentivize reuse instead of um, instead of making waste and recycling mm-hmm. and all those other things. Like reuse is really a better avenue than recycling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, like a lot of students seem really like interested in the H2 code stuff. Like mm-hmm. a lot of, I've seen a ton of people walk around with like their little barcodes on their water bottles and stuff. And so I think it's just like nice to know that like clerks and students do care about that kind of stuff. And yeah. You know, to what extent, who knows, but at least it's something. They care more than people realize, for yeah. sure. Um, like, overall, as a campus, we're doing much better in mm-hmm. all sorts of sustainability metrics than all the other schools up here. Mm-hmm. Like, we're definitely the leaders. Um, SLU has more flowers, and it maybe looks a lot more sustainable, right? But yeah. Then, the, uh, you know, Clarkson's actually, we're putting a lot more resources into it. Yeah. And our students mm-hmm. are very focused in yeah. how they're, and very, like, practical in how they're approaching some of these things. It's a really great um, community to be a part of when it comes mm-hmm. to this sort of stuff, I think. Yeah. Not only do we beat them in hockey, we beat them in sustainability. It's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's always room to grow, but we're we're growing more aggressively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. it's it's kind of crazy that... That would be something that would be we students would be doing well in because I mean overall when you think of Clarkson a lot of people are just too busy low involvement on, in certain things and something like that might fall to the wayside you think but a lot of students really care about it yeah and you get students that are going all in on these research projects like with the ducted wind turbine mm-hmm. and putting their you know they can really put their hands on some some high impact things here mm-hmm. are there any projects 
like H2 Code where students are taking initiative into their own hands that you've seen? Um, there, there's been a number of them with uh, getting better signage on waste bins around camp, the campus. That was this mm-hmm. very much a student-driven thing. Getting um, there, there was recently a petition going around saying we demand more you know, some composting and food waste diversion and stuff that was, mm-hmm. all, you know, student-led. Um, students were rallying at one point um, and going to President Collins about wanting more local food options mm-hmm. in the dining. Um, so there's been almost in every single avenue that I can think of, there's been some sort of student drive pushing yeah. it forward. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the big difference. Like just kids going and doing something. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I remember seeing all the new signs for the new wa- for the water bottles on where to put the stuff. I don't use water bottles, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't know. <laughs> I'm better than that. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I don't have any more questions. Is there anything else you wanted to talk yeah. about? Uh, no, no. I think I think that's it. Check out the climate stories. Okay, yeah. definitely do that. Where is it? You gotta plug I, yourself properly. I'll give you. Uh, I've got a YouTube link. Search climate stories, Alex yeah, French. Clarkson climate stories. Clarkson climate stories. And then you should be able to gotcha. find it into the Google machine. And, and <laughs> it'll, it'll pop up. We got a little YouTube thing going with it. All right. Nice. Well, thank you very much. That was very interesting. Thank you so much for listening. For Nick and Annalise, I'm producer Ben. As always, we hope you listen to us again sometime.